You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. 2 Peter chapter 1. Good to see you here this morning. It's nice to see the weather's getting warmer. It's going to be in the mid-30s, so Steve could get back to his short sleeves. Um, no coat, yeah, no coat. We are in the fifth week in a series in Second Peter chapter 1, a series entitled Make Every Effort, the Duty and Promise of Spiritual Growth. Spiritual growth is a duty. We see here that we are to make every effort to grow in this list of virtues, but it's also a promise. It's a duty and a promise. It's a du- we can't do it on our own. Verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things. And spiritual growth is a duty and it's a gift and it holds out great promise. We see down in verse 8 that, that it keeps us from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. All these virtues can grow in our lives only because and only through the fact that we know Jesus because his power is at work in our lives. So this morning we're going to think about supplementing our faith with godliness. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Let me read through the section with you again. 2 Peter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Father, we need your help. We don't want to be ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we need to grow, and we can't do that without your help. We can't do that without being in a living, vital faith relationship with you through Jesus Christ, the one who has died and risen again, suffered the penalty for our sins so that we don't have to if we trust and rest in him. We need you for everything. And so I pray that you'd help us. I pray now as we consider how to add to our faith godliness, you would give us clarity and conviction and courage to move forward and grow by your strength, for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Supplement your faith with godliness. Supplement your faith with godliness. Godliness is not a virtue 
that is widely prized in contemporary life. For instance, for all their grandiosity and self-importance, not one of our presidential candidates for the fall is touting how godly they are. I'm godlier than the other guy. No one's saying that. It sounds a little self-righteous, vain, holier than thou. Even in the church, where the idea of godliness is familiar to us, we don't really talk about that term very much. I'm not sure how clear we even are on what it means. But in Peter's day, as he's writing this letter that we call Second Peter, the virtue called godliness was known and prized, not just in the church, but in society as a whole. Uh, the word for godliness here is a word, eusebeia. Eusebeia, and eusebeia literally means something like good worship. It means good worship. It has the idea of proper fear and reverence. We tend to think of worship as a church thing. You go to church to worship, and then you leave church and go to the rest of your life. But in the ancient world, it was very different. Worship, good worship, eusebeia was a commonly held virtue. A number of years ago, in fact, it was the summer of 2005. Um, Kelly and I had been married for a couple years, and we had a good friend named Chris. And Chris was single at the time, and so he came over to our house all the time and ate dinner with us frequently. He's a good friend of ours. And uh, so in the summer of, must have been the summer of 2005, he said, hey, you know your anniversary's coming up, and I bought you an anniversary present. So that's great. He said, I bought you tickets to a concert up in Mount Pleasant. I'm like, well, that's great. It's uh, uh, Brad Paisley, if you must know who it was. And uh, so I said, I bought you tickets to Brad Paisley concert in Mount Pleasant. We're like, great, we'll have a great time. So we go on a date for our um, anniversary. So when the day came, we piled into the car to head on our date, me and Kelly and Chris. And uh, we... <laughs> We, we headed up to our concert in Mount Pleasant, and it was a good concert. We, we enjoyed our time. And it was, it's kind of outdoor amphitheater there, and lots of people, thousands of people at this concert. And uh, I, as I was sitting there, just thinking about it, one of the opening acts was playing, and, and I started to think, for whatever reason, wouldn't it be something at this concert, thousands of people here, if someone were to stand up and talk about Jesus, even for just a little while, if someone were to stand up and share the good news of Jesus here, that would be fantastic. But it would also be or feel really strange. In that environment, it would feel really odd to stand up and talk. I think a lot of people probably even offensive. It just because religious worship kind of things just feels very out of place in a public setting like that. But that's just not how it was in the ancient world. Religion, worship, the gods were part of everyday life for, for virtually everybody. Think about um, the Apostle Paul going to Ephesus, that great city on the western coast of, of what is now Turkey. We read about some of it earlier in our service in Acts 19. What were the Ephesians as a people more proud of than anything else? Their temple a place of worship. It was the center of their city. The center of their commercial and civic life was the temple to Artemis. 
the great goddess of the Ephesians. The temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was their proudest thing, not for the religious Ephesians, for all of the Ephesians. So when Paul starts preaching the gospel, as we read earlier, many of the Ephesians start turning to Christ. They stop worshiping these idols, and uh, the idol, idol makers' guild starts to get upset. And their spokesman, Demetrius, stands up and, and he says, hey, in Acts 19, men, men, you know we have from this business our wealth. And you see that Paul, right, is people all over this area are turning to Christ and they're starting to believe that gods made by hands aren't gods. And he says there's danger. Not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis might be counted as nothing. She may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia in the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. In two hours in an outdoor amphitheater, they yell together, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. See, see Demetrius and the silversmiths were mostly concerned about the, the impact on their profit margin. Their profit. That's what they were mostly concerned about. But they know that everyone else isn't that concerned about their, their profit. So what do they appeal to? They appeal to their use of Bea. They appeal to their godliness and sense of duty to their God, saying, look what's going to happen to our gods and our temple if we do this. That's what they appeal to. He doesn't use the word, but he's appealing to their use of Bea, their what we would call godliness. Godliness was a, a kind of duty. It was a responsibility, a duty that needed to be... People were obligated to show reverence and loyalty to everyone to whom it was due. Your parents, your family, your ancestors, your city or country, and mostly to the gods. We must show proper reverence, respect. It's our duty to reverence and worship those who deserve it. About 450 years before Peter writes this letter, in 399 B.C., there was an important trial in the city of Athens. One of the most famous citizens of Athens was charged with a crime and brought before the courts. He was what we would today call a philosopher. You're familiar with his name, Socrates. What was the charge against him? There were two, corrupting the youth of the city and impiety. Not Eusebea, Asabea, not godly. Not showing the proper reverence and fear. Ungodly. And what they meant by that explicitly was Socrates does not acknowledge the gods that our city acknowledges. He's not godly, he's ungodly, he's impious, and he's leading astray the youth of the city. And they sentence him to death and he drinks the hem the poisonous hemlock and dies because it wasn't just a in the church in the temple kind of issue it was a widely held virtue eusebeia this word we're translating as godliness you show the proper reverence the prophet respect you have a duty to revere and esteem those who deserve it family parents ancestors city, the gods. It wasn't just Socrates is not an isolated instance. The early Christians after the book of Acts were often persecuted for their impiety 
their asabea, their unwillingness to acknowledge, they would say, no, there's only one God, and they'd be persecuted for it. You're not showing the respect, the reverence you should. They sometimes labeled them, the Romans did, labeled the Christians as atheists because they were ungodly. They denied the gods that everyone else reverenced and worshipped. This eusebeia, this godliness, was an important and esteemed virtue in the Greco-Roman world. So when Peter's letter reaches these Christians, they're familiar with the idea. It's not a new term for them. But he's not concerned that they show appropriate reverence and honor for the Greek and Roman gods or for Caesar or for the nation. He connects their godliness with the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Godliness in regards to him. So what does that mean? What does Christian godliness look like? Well, the New Testament is not a dictionary, and it doesn't give us a great definition, but I think we can get a good sense of it by looking at its opposite, ungodliness, this asabeia. And we see that clearly in Romans chapter 1. So turn back to Romans chapter 1. Paul will tackle this ungodliness head-on here in a powerful passage. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Now, let me stop just for a second. That tells us that ungodliness is serious. Because the wrath of God is poured out against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Here's the key here, verse 21. For although they knew God... They didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I want to see in this section three aspects, three crucial components of what godliness, Christian godliness looks like. Here's the first. Christian godliness looks like living a Godward life. Living a Godward life. It says in verse 21, although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God. They didn't honor him as God. Remember the charge against Socrates? He's not acknowledging the gods that this city acknowledges. He was impious. He, he mocked the gods. He belittled them. He ignored them and treated them as irrelevant and inconsequential. Now, now, now contrast that. Socrates, 400 years before Jesus, go back about another 400 years to the time of Homer. You read the Iliad and the Odyssey and the gods are everywhere in those. 
everything that happens has to do with the gods. The Iliad and the Odyssey isn't just a story about what men and women are doing on the earth. It's about the gods in heaven and how these things interact. They're constantly concerned about what's going on with the gods. And so by the time you get to Socrates, centuries later, his impiety is he's acting like they don't matter. Like they're inconsequential. Like they don't need to be taken into regard in day-to-day life. He doesn't honor them as gods. Now those gods, of course, are, are false gods, but Paul brings that same idea here. And he says, sinful mankind knows God, but doesn't honor him as God. They live as though God is inconsequential, mostly irrelevant, doesn't need to be taken into account. Maybe I'll pay attention if I have time. They know of God, but they don't honor him as God. Paul couldn't disagree more. 450 years after Socrates' trial, Paul will stand in Athens on Mars Hill, and he'll say to them, these Athenians of God, in God we, we live and move and have our being. Our very existence depends on, is tied up with God himself. Godliness looks like living a Godward life. Every part of our lives, our actions, and our very existence relates to God and depends on God. That's why Solomon will say that wisdom, in Proverbs chapter 3, he says of wisdom, in all your ways acknowledge Him. In all your ways acknowledge Him. So think about the law for Israel in the Old Testament. You know, if you're reading through the Bible, you just plan to read through the Bible in the year. You read through Genesis, it's great stories. You read through uh, the first half of Exodus, and it's, you know, great stories. And then you get to the middle of Exodus, and then you get chapter after chapter of law and rules and rituals for every aspect of life. I mean, there's, there's rules in there about how your house should be built and rules in there about, you know, how to evaluate pimples and, you know, I mean, also every, every aspect of life shows up in the law. And after a while, you say, good grief. This covers absolutely everything. What's the point? Well, the point is God has to do with everything. There's no, there's no aspect of your life that is apart from God. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Honor him. Live a Godward life. And living a godly life requires us to ask and answer some important questions. I mean, how am I living my life in a Godward way? We hardly even have asked that question. In a way that honors God and acknowledges my need for and dependence on Him. I was thinking about this yesterday as I was driving to Home Depot to pick up some painter's caulk and hardwood trim nails, if you must know. And I thought, how do I go to Home Depot in a Godward way? How do I go to Home Depot in a Godward way? Well, that requires some thought and work. How do I live in my marriage in a Godward way? in a way that honors God and acknowledges that he exists and that I depend on and need him? How do I work my job in a Godward way? How do I live in my neighborhood in a Godward way? How do I parent my children? How do I involve myself in my church? How do I enjoy my hobbies? How do I 
think about my health in a Godward way. That it honors and acknowledges Him and my need for Him and His sovereignty over the world and His plans for me and what He's done for me in Jesus Christ. How do I do any of these things in a Godward way? We, we need to do the work to answer these questions. Let me encourage you. I encourage you to, to pick an area of your life and, and think and pray this week. How do I do this in a Godward way? I mean, consider what the Bible has to say about it. Take your job, for instance. How do, I, how do I go to work in a Godward way? It's asking more questions about how can, than just how can I enjoy my day better? How can I move up in this company? How can I make some more money? How can I survive to next weekend? But how do I go to work in a Godward way? And, and God's Word tells us things. Work heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. Right? I go to work and I think I'm not just working for my boss. I'm working for the Lord. How do we work in a Godward way? 1 Corinthians 10, familiar verse. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to what? Glory of God. Godliness looks like living a Godward life. It also looks like living a grateful life. Back in Romans 1.21, they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God, or, or give thanks to Him. Or give thanks to Him to him. A big part of living a godly life, of living a Godward life, is living a grateful life. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul asked the Corinthians, he says, what do you have that you didn't receive? What do you have that wasn't given to you? The implied answer is what? Nothing. Everything you have was given to you. So, he says, if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? The Corinthians' problem is they've become puffed up. They're proud. They're proud of their accomplishments. They're proud of who they are. They're proud of their spiritual attainments. So Paul says, where'd you get that? All this stuff you're so proud of, where did that come from? He says, God gave it to you. So why are you so proud? It's hard to be proud and grateful. James reminds us every good and perfect gift comes down from us to our Heavenly Father. Therefore, thankfulness should be a much bigger part of our lives than it is. We don't have anything we haven't received. So, we ought to be thankful to God. Your intelligence that's helped you so much, that's a gift. Your work ethic that's moved you forward, well, that's largely a gift too, cultivated by the family and connections God has put you in. The resources that you have, the opportunities that you've received, those are gifts. To be grateful to God, and not just to God, but to others. One of God's best gifts to us is putting good people who love us, care for us, help us, encourage us, and grow us into our lives. None of us would be where we are on our own. God has given us much, and, and the people in your lives, in most of our cases, starting with our parents, God has blessed us with. We, to live a Godward life, we must live a grateful life. Thirdly, living 
a good life. Look at verse 24. Because they haven't honored God or given thanks to him, God, verse 24, gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. They have a problem. The life they're living is not a good life, and the problem is misdirected worship. They've worshiped and served the creature, created things, rather than the creator. This is always the challenge. This is always the temptation. It is always the problem. It's not that we're deciding whether or not to worship. It's what we're going to worship. We can be very devoted to the wrong things. I listened to an interview recently with a guy named Jack Goldsmith, who's an author and uh, teaches in Harvard Law School. And it so happens that Jack Goldsmith's stepfather is a man named Chucky O'Brien. You may have heard of Chucky O'Brien. Chucky O'Brien was a driver and a longtime assistant to Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, and uh, so Chucky O'Brien was uh, a fascinating guy. It was a fascinating interview uh, listening to this man talk about his stepfather and their relationship. And uh, Chucky O'Brien was um, uh, a longtime one of the top suspects the FBI had in, in Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance back in 1975. And uh, a few years back, uh, this man who was being interviewed was uh, kind of had reconciled. He'd grown apart from, from Chucky O'Brien. Chucky O'Brien was a fascinating character. His, his dad was kind of this easygoing Irishman, and his mom was from a Sicilian crime family, the straight mafia, right? So you got this easygoing dad and a, and a mother who's straight mafia, and um, which I I thought was really interesting, and I'm kind of sympathetic to that because that's basically how I grew up. And um, the uh, not really, but well, yeah. Uh, anyway, and so 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 late in life, you know, obviously Hoffa's long gone. All these other people, Chucky O'Brien was an insider in all of this, and kind of the high levels of organized labor and and, um, and mafia things going on in Detroit back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and so. So not that long ago, uh, this man who's being interviewed was, was meeting regularly with his stepfather and wanting to kind of get to the truth, mostly wanting to clear Chucky O'Brien's name because he didn't think he'd, he was actually connected to the disappearance of Hoffa. And he said, he goes, I know this guy knows a ton. He knew everybody. He has to know all sorts of things that were going on in Detroit and in organized crime, but he won't say. He, he won't tell. And he said, it's, it doesn't matter anymore. Anybody that could do anything to him is long gone. And he could clear his name. But he has this strong sense of duty. This strong sense of it's not right. You don't tell. You don't spill the beans. You don't, you know, whatever. I don't even know the term. But anyway, you don't, you don't, you don't say what you shouldn't say about people. You don't, you don't divulge that information strong sense of duty, even though it would seem like he had every reason to clear his name and share that. And, and the man said, I really respected his conviction and his sense of duty, misplaced though it is. He's protecting the wrong 
people. You and I have a strong sense of duty, a strong commitment to something. And the natural man, apart from God, tends to have a strong commitment and a strong sense of duty to the wrong things. In general, created things rather than the creator. It's not that in most cases it's bad things. Often it's good things that God has given to us, but they become the number one priority. They become the thing that rules us. They become the thing that we are committed strongly to and we must have. And so they become idols. He says they, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man in birds and animals and creeping things. And you read that and you go, wait a minute. So this, these people, they could worship the true God, the creator God, but instead they buy or make these little statues and then they bow down before him. And we think, well, how stupid is that? Who would bow down to a little statue? And the answer is, you and I would if everyone else around us was. We'd bow down to it too. It would seem like the most natural, obvious thing to do. Everybody does this. So, so change it. It's not, not a statue anymore. Say it's any created thing. Who would bow down and give their life for money and esteem and material goods and a... F Pick your thing. Who would do that? You and I would if everyone else around us is doing that as well. And we become deeply committed, not necessarily to bad things, but to created things instead of to the creator himself. And our lives become one of idolatry. A godly life has a proper target and focus for worship. We don't esteem the gifts above the giver of the gifts. We don't worship those things, created things, over the creator. That's idolatry. It's foolish. It's wrong. It's not good. It's ungodly. It's not showing the proper reverence and honor and esteem that the creator God deserves. Godliness looks like living a Godward life in every way. Living a grateful life. Living a good life worshiping God himself. So how do we grow in this? How do we grow? Let me give you three things quickly. First of all, with prayer. What I really mean there is we need help. We need help. Idols only go kicking and screaming. They never go easily. That's why right at the beginning of our passage back in first, Second Peter 1 there, it says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We need his help. And so prayer is key to growing in godliness. Secondly, with the word. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, I won't take time to go and read that passage with you, but in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul's writing to his protege Timothy, who's pastor in Ephesus, and he encourages him to focus on the teaching that accords with godliness. The teaching that accords with godliness, because there's teaching going around in Ephesus that doesn't accord with godliness. And it sounds like good teaching. In fact, in that particular case, if we went and read that chapter, we'd see that the teaching was basically that godliness is a means for gain. You can live like you're living toward God 
and you can figure out a way to make that help you become rich. Paul says, no, 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 that's not, that's not a teaching that accords with godliness. Godliness isn't a mean to riches. Godliness is a means to God. God is the goal, and God is the target. He's the reward. And so a godly life must be informed by God's word. Here's the third. We do this with intentionality. 2 Peter 1.5, make every effort to supplement your faith. 1 Timothy 4 says, have nothing to do with irrelevant silly myths. Rather, train yourself, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. For it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul says, you've got to train yourself for godliness. It, it requires a kind of intentionality. It goes back to what we talked about a few minutes ago about thinking, how do we live a Godward life in these various domains? Training requires a plan. I was looking at a book this week. The title of the book was um, My First Triathlon. I don't know why I was looking at that book, but I was. Uh, my First Triathlon. And I thought, if I was to do a triathlon, I would need a training plan. I would need some kind of plan. I don't want to try to figure it out. And this book lays out an entire plan for do this on this day, and it lays it all out for you. Um, and one of the things, the principle, the, the kind of guiding, organizing principle was you need to order your life around your workouts. You, you gotta, it's the rest of your life, that has to come first. You've got to put that in the right spot and build the rest of your life around your tri-workouts. Well, the same principle applies for godliness. You have to order your life around it. It's not something that you can squeeze in at the margins if there happens to be room. But rather, it becomes the organizing principle.